Let me move some stuff around. Genesis chapter 34 through 36. Grab your Bibles and we'll look at that tonight. Realigning cameras, all that. Okay, we're good. Got a thumbs up up there. We're all right. Okay. Remind me not to move to my right. Um, Let's pray. See if I get my mind around this again. Father, thank you for uh, just a gathering tonight. So good to see so many out tonight just to enjoy the word of God and put ourselves under your truth. Lord, we are bombarded by man's false wisdom. Uh, it's in daily conversation, it's in news, it's, it's everywhere, Lord. And we can, become, we can succumb to uh, the lies of the world or at least be tainted by stuff. And so, Lord, we want to be men and women, young people of the Word of God. And so tonight, as we turn into our Bibles again... And look at history long ago that you wrote down for us. May you cause us to know you better. And particularly in this passage that we would know your mercy better. Mercy that's given when it is not deserved. Lord, there's not a person in this room that doesn't need that. Or hasn't experienced it. So Lord, give us strength to know your word, see you clearly, love your Savior more and more tonight. Thank you for each and everyone that's here. In Jesus' name, amen. There are times you'll hear Hayward or others get up here and will thank the Lord you know, that he's forgiven us for our sins. Uh, that's a response of believers. And I think it's important not to dwell, dwell on past sins. Past sins are dangerous. I want you to be reminded of that. They can trap us. Satan loves the past. You realize that. He loves the future, he loves the past, he does not love today. But the Bible says today is the day of salvation, today is the day we live, this is all we know this moment in time. So when we talk about thanksgiving for our sins forgiven, it is merely to reflect of how God still loves us despite who we are. And I think that's why we think through that sometimes and you hear it in our music. We just sang that great song, All I Have is Christ. And the, and the whole instruction on that is, man, I was hell bound if it were not for the grace of God. So it's good for us to reflect on that thing, those things. We'll see that in this text today where God is so merciful. But it, it, this whole text, and I got done studying it and finally pinned down the last words today for tonight's sermon. My mind was flooded with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. And there God's word says, for you were once not a people. But now you are. Doesn't that sound like it's written to the nation of Israel, but yet it's in the New Testament for us? You were not once a people. That that's just simply means you and I were just in the fallen race of man. There was no uniqueness to us, no holy ethnos, no calling of God's family to himself. You once were not a people, but now you are. The peop- then it says this, the people of God. And it just doesn't leave it there. You remember this verse, right? What's the next phrase? You once did not have mercy, right? You you had not received mercy. And now you have. You've received the mercy of God. This is why we worship. Everything we do here is built on this. (laughs) God took us who did not belong to him. 
We're a part of Satan's world. I mean, Ephesians can't say it any clearer. We used to belong to the one who works in the sons of disobedience. And then he gave us mercy. Today's text is a difficult one. It's 34 through 36. It is ugly. It's full of sin. These are God's people. This is the fledgling nation of Israel. It's a mess. But if it were not for God, we might be in this text. Or, all of us know what we're capable and have done in the past as well. If God were to pin that down for all of mankind to read, it may look something like some of these things. So Genesis 34 um, is entirely given over to wickedness of pagan people and sons of Jacob that do horrible things. The family's moved back near Shechem where Isaac once had a ranch there. They've come into that area now. They're near Mount Gerizim. If you want to look in the back of your Bible, you can kind of see where they're at. They're roughly about 45 miles north of where future Jerusalem will be and 20 miles inland of the west of the Jordan River. That's where the family now is. They've been through a lot they're, they're settled there for a while now. Time has gone by. The chapter centers around Jacob's only known daughter, and that's Dinah. That's what the chapter centers around. But, as you'll see, sadly, it doesn't focus on this terrible event that happens to her. It actually focuses on the terrible people of the text. She is... A young woman at this time, we saw her birthed in the last several chapters. She comes after these 11 boys, she, the Dinah comes along, and, and, but now she's most likely at least a mid-teenager, if not older teenager gal, somewhere even close to 20. And her younger brother Benjamin has not yet been born, we'll see that towards the end of the message. Let me give you some thoughts just to try to tie some thinking around what happens to pull some of this together. Number one, a people without mercy. I wasn't sure what to title this. I actually kept coming back and changing this because it's such a difficult passage to, to kind of read down through. But let's look at it together. Notice it starts with the word now. I think most of the translations use the word now there. And that's an interesting uh, use in the Hebrew because there's been a great span of time that's gone by. Right? We're going to see the death of Isaac at the end of this text tonight. He's 180 years. And we're blowing through years in these chapters um, by leaps and bounds. But now marks this event that God clearly wants us to know about. And when you read it, you go, God, I'm not sure I really want to know about this. But, but he says, now I, I want you to hear this. So, so much of what happened in, in the life of Jacob and his family was was has gone by but this passage why i i i talk, was talking to the lord as i'm studying this i go why pick this one out of all these years but then i got to re think about remember as we started this series when was genesis written and who wrote it well we know moses wrote the pentateuch the five first five penta five in hebrew first five books 
And so we remember, we recall that this book is being written probably somewhere on that Sinar plain or on the border of Canaan, Canaan before they go on. And it's a reminder to the nation of Israel of the greatness of God. And in fact, as you study this particular text, I think he's trying to remind people of the, the vile godlessness of the Canaanites because that comes out in this text. But he's also showing that the Israelites are not any better without the grace of God. And you see that in this text, what happens to this young girl. And so the heart of man is desperately wicked, as we were reminded in Mark 7 a couple of weeks ago. Look at verse 1 with me. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had bore to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. Now, that's an interesting Phrase, and we don't want to read more into the scriptures than here, um, but it was recorded for us to understand both God and man, right? When we study this, we want to understand God and man as we read these. And, and Dinah, uh, Dinah may have been innocent. She might have just taken a stroll into town. The text doesn't give us quite enough to put our finger on all of this. Maybe she just wanted to see what the Canaanite girls were wearing, you know? She had been on Instagram and, you know, she read the stone and it was, you know, there, I don't know, she, she wanders into town. And she, and we, and we should probably understand the verse that way, that there's not anything particular. But the phrase in that verse, notice it went out to visit the daughters of the land. And then we're going to see that when Jacob moves them back to uh, Hebron, he collects all the family's idols and buries them in a tree. We're going to see that. So there's enough hint here. There's enough hint that I think we're in good hermeneutical ground to say she might have been doing things she may not have been, should have done. <laughs> if you follow me. I don't know. But she's in a place that's probably not where she should be. Dinah had witnessed her father's relationships with four women. Two of which were his wives, two were handmaidens, you remember that. Birth of 11 brothers, she's seen all that. She's also seen the favoritism of Rachel, particularly because of her beauty. This is a young girl, she's impressionable. Her dad has done all this, she's seen all this, and she begins to add this up, possibly. And so she takes a stroll into town. It's possible that this young woman had worldly longings that end in tragedy. Verse 2, when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivitite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and laid with her by force. These verses show the perversity of the Canaanites. These were godless people with little moral restraint and and this seems to be the king's son. He's called the prince of the land. And this is what happens. This young girl comes to our stroll in town and she is taken by force. And for all intents and purposes, we know the word for this is his rape. Verse 3 and 4. Twisted love here. He has a deep attraction to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. No care for her, no care for her father. He's robbed her, he's robbed her father. All of that goes with, with sexual immorality. So Shechem spoke to his father saying, get the terms here, get me this young girl for a wife. 
So interesting to look at words like that, right? Not my wife, a wife. It's in the, it's in the Hebrew, there, it's no article there. It's not, that's my gal, a wife. This also seems to be a case of possibly the rich and famous spoiled kid. <laughs> He's the prince of the king. And yet, verse 19 says, he's the best of them. <laughs> if we'll see in a little bit. Verse 5, notice it says this. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. I think we're again in Jacob's life starting to see a pattern which is not his best quality. The words throughout this portion of Scripture seem to focus, and think about this, seem to focus on the honor of the family and almost nothing about the damage and hurt of Dinah. Look at it. As we go along, look for anything in this text that says, how can we care for this gal? It is all about the honor of the family. I don't know if you've ever seen that in our own society. Back in the day... That happened quite often where girls got pregnant. They were kind of hid away. Um, my own grandmother was shipped out of Scotland and shipped to America. She was pregnant outside of wedlock and, and hid here in the States. Her child was taken from her by her own family, later to be shipped out here when she was older. Um, it, it, there was The honor of the family was at stake. And, and again, we understand the sinfulness spreads upon the family. And, and again, not all of that we're pointing fingers at, but... Often, uh, the circumstances are not even looked into. Verse 5 here um, is a little bit disturbing. You go, well, what's going through Jacob's head? Why is he silent at these verses? Why, what is he, what's going through his head? Is he, is he playing that passive card again? You know, he's done that in the past, kind of coming into situations. How am I going to handle Esau? How am I going to handle Laban? He's checking me down. He's chasing me down. Uh, you know, he, he seems to fall back into this passive relationship where he does not take leadership in things. This has been a problem with him. From the birthright to the blessing to all of those things, kind of laying back, letting other people make decisions instead of leading this family. And maybe he thought he could gain some wealth from the situation. Well, I know Esau really blew it in her mainland, but this is good. This is Shechem. This is some good people. They got a lot of money. There's things here. Maybe he was thinking that. I don't know. Because they think that. And maybe he was thinking, I'm not much of a fighter. I'm just going to be quiet and let my boys do this. And that's exactly what happens. Notice verse 6 and 7. Now Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field, and when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry. I think so, because they had done this disgraceful thing in Israel by laying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing had not been done. Now that's some interesting words here. First of all, think about this, Hamar comes to Jacob. I would hope, fathers in here, (laughs) you would go (laughs) and find out who did this. But Hamar comes to Jacob. He hasn't responded to this. And about this time when all this conversation is going on, guess who rides in? The boys do. They've been out on the ranch taking care of the livestock. And notice the word in the text says the men now. I mean, these, Dinah's probably late teen, maybe 20. She's the last of the, uh, of the children being born uh, so far. So the boys are older than her. 
These are men in their 20s and 30s. They're in the prime of their physical life. And they write in. And there is a grief there at first, the verse says, but that quickly turns to anger. Notice that. And the men were grieved, middle of seven, and, and they were very angry. Now, there's a commentary in this. Um, and again, notice there's no quotes in your text. So this is Moses' commentary that's going on in here. Notice in the middle of verse It says this, because he had done a disgraceful thing. Now look at this little phrase here. In Israel, by laying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. Now wait a minute. Done in Israel? They don't own anything. (laughs) They're not a nation. They're in another nation. They're living in the land of Canaan. They don't own much land. They have area where they spread out in the wilderness. But isn't that interesting, Moses' commentary on this? And remember, I think this is what wakes me up sometimes when I study this. I'm going, that's right, Moses is talking to these, this, all these probably young fellows who their parents have died off from disbelief uh, about the promised land and God's promises. And they're about ready to go in and Moses is reminding them who they are, what God has done. And so he says, this is a disgraceful thing in Israel. I think, I think Moses is reminding the people that the Canaanites are wicked, godless people. And he's maybe rallying them as they get ready to go in and fight. And there's times where Israel is not to leave anything alive. And you know that as you read your Bible. And there's a little bit of commentary from Moses here as he writes. But they're... They are one family. I mean, think about this. They're, they're just one family. And it says in, in Israel. And, uh, so so he's, he, there's a bigger picture here that's going on here. So we move to verse 8. Hamar spoke with them saying, so now the boys are there. Jacob's there. And we don't know where Dinah is. Um, and he begins to speak. The soul, now listen to this terminology. The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. Thus you shall live with us and the land should be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property. And Shechem also said to her father, said to her father, uh, her father and, and to her brothers, if I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much of a bridal payment and gifts, and I will give according as you say to me. But give me the girl in marriage. Well, there's interesting language throughout this. I notice you, you'll probably notice it. Verse 8, he's, he's talking to Jacob about your daughter, but it will not be... Jacob, who responds, it will be the sons who answer in verse 13. We'll see that in a minute. He uses the term intermarry. (laughs) I'm hoping that Jacob about there clicked and said, this is what my brother did. This was displeasing to my parents and to God. You're hoping that you see that response, and yet we don't see that. There's a warning here about marrying outside of the will of God. Everything looks good. It's inviting. They come from good stock. They have money. They have all these things. This is what our young people have to wrestle with. Do I pursue this? 
And yet it's outside of the will of God. And, and Christians today, if you are young people who are raised in church, they know these truths and should be taught. The gospel should keep them from making poor decisions in this. And yet, you have to understand, when you read this, there's a lot of push. Have all of our stuff. Here, you'll be wealthy. You won't have to struggle. See how that just comes? Like, man, this is just, this would be a great thing. It's all gift-wrapped and leading people right to sin. Notice he uses the term in verse 10, open before you. I think this is an interesting little phrase here. What it's doing is attempting in fact, it's tempting Jacob and these sons here to gain what God promised another way. Now, does that sound familiar? Start thinking about birthrights and blessings that got promised to Jacob, and yet he didn't believe that. And here's another way. I can do a bowl of soup and get it. I can, I can dress up and put fur on my arms. I can get it. And yet God already promised all these things. And here, once again, comes the old bait and switch. You can have it early. Satan did this with Jesus, right? Bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. He's going to get all the kingdoms of the world. That's what, God, that's, that's what God teaches us to do, to protect ourselves, to recognize that God is the giver of all the things that come to us. Everything good comes down from the Father above. And we have to examine where those things come from. Verse 11 and 12 is just an enticement of wealth, isn't it? We'll give you whatever you want. You name the bridal payment and we'll give it to you. How many Christians would fall for that today or those who claim to be? Well, Mom, Dad, you don't know. I mean, I'll never have to struggle. I can have wealth. And isn't that the, the lie of Satan in the world? Sell your soul. Second thought, deceit combined with false religion. Jacob's passivity, as we start to see here in verse 13 through 24, kicks in and his sons take over. Jacob seems to be overwhelmed and he quietly takes the back seat to these compulsive boys. Meanwhile, we see no compassion for Dinah. We've been through 12 verses, nothing's mentioned of this young gal. This is not one of Jacob's more finer spiritual hours here. In the anger over the family being dishonored, the boys concoct a plan, and it's a good one. It's a mixture of, of deceit and false religion. That's what they're going to do. The plan was never to combine the families, never to be one big, fat, happy, wealthy dysfunctional family as they were offering to them. The plan was murder disguised in religious activities. That was the plan. Now surely <laughs> these events in Scripture are not just to give us a, this, this nasty inside you know, gossip of Jacob's family. These events, when you study the Old Testament, particularly in these type of areas are recorded for the nation of Israel on the border of Canaan. Remember that. But they're also recorded for us. I want to show you a text, and this would take in a lot of these stories. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
as this passage came to mind as I began to think, Lord, what do I do with this text? I'm not sure I even want to read it to people. (laughs) There's stuff in here that is just horrible. This is nightly news type of stuff from the worst parts of our nation and around the world. But then I thought of this text, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Follow along with me, starting verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that's us, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the clouds and in the sea and all ate of the same spiritual food and all drank of the spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock that flowed from them. The rock was Christ. Isn't that Paul? Just ties everything into the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happen, now listen to this, as an example for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as was written the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor act, uh, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day, Numbers chapter 21. Nor let us Try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example that they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation, this is good news here, no temptation has overtaken you. Wealth, sexual pleasure, all of the things that we see in this, anger, uh, frustration, in getting right or setting the table square as these boys are going to try to do. No temptation has overtaken you. Such is common to man. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with a temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my bro- brother, brethren, flee from idolatry. What a reminder. And, and I, as I thought about this, I said, Lord, this is ugly. Why, are, you know, why do you want us to study it? Well, Israel needed to see it, and we need to see it. Because our lives, left to ourselves, we would pull towards this stuff easy. How many of us would not want to have to deal with bills anymore if it was offered to you? But you had to give up what you knew was right. And so we go through these things, don't we, from time to time. And we have to trust the Lord. Perhaps one of the lessons of Genesis 34 is that worldliness and religious practices are deadly. And we're going to see that in a moment. And I want you to think about circumcision, why God did that. And they're going to, they're going to bring this into play. It was, it was to set God's people apart. And it, more than that, it was a practice that was leading to something greater. I hope you're still in the New Testament. Just turn over to Colossians real quick. Because the things that they're going to do are, are evil, but the practice God gave them was pointing to something greater. Turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. And following. For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So Jesus was everything God was. And God is everything Jesus is. They share that deity together. And in him you have been made complete. 
You don't need to do anything else. There's no adding to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the head over all rule and all authority. So we can trust him with our finances. He owns everything. He can take us through those things. And in him you were also, look at this, circumcised with a circumcised made without hands. In the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through the faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. So here, baptism is a spiritual term. When, when, when Jesus died, we died with him. And when he arose, we rose in newness of life. And this washing away of this dead, decaying sin was, was done by Christ. Verse 13 reminds us of that. When you were dead in your transgressions and your uncircumcised flesh, he made you alive together, having forgiven all of your transgressions. Look at this last phrase, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of degrees against us. Just line after line after line saying this is why this person needs to die. Jesus canceled that out, having nailed it to the cross. Well, back to our text in, in Genesis 34. We come back to the situation and here things are getting worse. Jacob's sons, they answer Shechem. There's deceit in their hearts. You can see that in verse 13 with deceit because he had defiled Dinah's their sister, and they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to ones who are uncircumcised. And so they see they're going to use this, this religion, this religious practice to bring about, bring about murder. For that would be, disgrace, be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition, you can see this happening. This is a little bit tense here. We will consent to you if you will become like us and, and every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters ourselves and we will live with you and become as one people. Verse 17, but if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Isn't that interesting? That's not Jacob speaking, that's the son speaking. They're speaking on his behalf. He is not saying anything. Well, we see that this little play worked. Notice in verse 20, Hamar and his son, uh, son Shechem, they, they said, okay. They come back to the gate of the city in verse 20, and they spoke to the men of this city saying, these men are friendly with us. <laughs> Boy, they must have sold this really good. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Then that all sounds good. Oh, well, we'll, we'll convert. <laughs> well, their hearts aren't any better than the sons of Jacob. Look at verse 23. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent and they will live with us. And so the deceivers are trying to, de to deceive the deceived, right? They're, just, they're both deceivers. And what happens is it just leads to death, right? Well, we're going to see that. All this sin is going to lead to great death. 
So Hamar and Shechem, they led all of the men into their plan and, and they appealed to their flesh of the town. Look, we're going to have their girls and we're going to have their stuff and it's going to be great. Just like they sold that bill of goods to the sons of Jacob. Verse 23 is very key. We'll have all their stuff. And they will live with us. <laughs> You're going to die. <laughs> sin leads to death. <laughs> the wages of sin is death. James 1 says that when, when lust is conceived and gives birth, it gives birth to death. That is what sin does. It kills. And this whole scheme is, is set up by sinful hearts to bring about death. And just one thought before I leave this, because I don't want to miss this opportunity, especially as we speak to men here. Men are led often into death through sexual sin and covetousness. Men, we are susceptible to these things. And every time they will bring death Maybe not your physical death at this moment, but they will bring death to relationships. They'll bring death to, to love. They'll bring death to so many things. This is what happens when this sin is not repented of and by the grace of God turned from. Third thought, an infant nation with blood on its hands. Well, verse 25, we start into a real mess. Led by Simeon and Levi, the two Two of the older brothers, the sons of Jacob, murder an entire town. Murder an entire town. Look with me. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that the two, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and, and uh, Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem, that's the king and the prince, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house, apparently they had her there, and went forth. Now, the, the, they picked the, I mean, you just can't get around this. They picked the worst day if you're going through this. Now, most young men or babies today get done and they never remember circumcision. These are grown men and they're in great pain. So this was calculated. The police would call this what? Premeditated. It's murder. It's absolutely premeditated murder. And not just of one person who did the offense. They're going to wipe out, their attempt is to wipe out this whole nation. That's their goal. And murder is never pleasing to God no matter what it's about. God was so serious about it, he wrote it in the Ten Commandments. And it still is a problem today, isn't it? Texas just made a ruling real quick that they shut down their, their um, death penalty for, for a little bit. And it's amazing how many, there. I was just reading an article, how many guys have done the most heinous crimes. And so, so they, they murder, but when there's an opportunity to put back corporal punishment the return, what God would tell us to do, that is rejected. And that's what Romans 1 says. What is wrong will be right and right will be wrong. And yet here we have just a mess. So the men are dead. The women and children are taken into slavery. 
Notice verse 27, Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. There's the excuse for that. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. They captured and looted all the wealth and all the little ones, verse 29, and their wives, even all that was in the house, houses. And so this is just, this is just in plundering, isn't it? And yes, Shechem and uh, Hamar, they had godless intentions of lust and deception and covetousness in their hearts as well, but there's no amount of justification that can excuse what they would have called in this day, what they would call honor killing. And if you don't think honor killing is still around, you should check society. I was in the Latin world a little while ago, Gene and I were teaching some conferences down there, and we got talking about just the struggles down there and the, what's going on. And, and they were telling me about honor killing. You kill one of ours, we kill one of yours. It's in the Arab world. This is really big in the Arab world. If you do that, they take the law in their own hands. You say, well, yeah, these godless nations. Have you ever been around our gang problem? Do you know how many young men that Gene and I worked with for years that were part of gangs and hidden out? We hid, they came to our homes. We worked with them in, in juvenile court systems that had, their brother had killed another rival gang. And, you know, they're hiding this little boy out because their goal is to kill this little 10-year-old boy. Honor killing. These same people will have religious paraphernalia in their cars. They will pray that God will bring them to the right person. When you talk to these young boys, you realize that it's all based in a religion that they believe. It's a mixture of Catholicism and just demonic stuff and, and it's honor killing. It's right here in our nation. And it's around the world. I think possibly the most disturbing verse... <laughs> Or the last ones in verse 34. Notice verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and, and, uh, Simeon and, and Levi, You have brought trouble on me. You brought trouble on me? What about your God? What about your daughter? You brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and Prezerites, and my people being few in number. They will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. See, this fear just come out of him. He's not concerned with Dinah. He's not concerned with the wicked capabilities of his own sons. He's not concerned about the families of the slain. They butchered him like dogs. I'm worried about me. He uses a very interesting word. It is bash, bash in the Hebrew. Here we translate it odious. It's a wretched smell. Uh, some of the English translations of this word, we trans I saw some translations in uh, extra biblical material called Disgusting. So Jacob says, we'll be disgusting to these people. And I don't have enough to fight all these people. Jacob, what happened with Laban? What happened with your brother? What happened with all the miles you traveled through godless lands? He's, he's slipped again. 
Jacob knew exactly what his sons had done. He had seen the awfulness of this. But it seems to be, he seems to be unconcerned about that and more concerned about the safety of his family during a horrible butchery of, his, of these people. The boys never repent. And in verse 31, look at the response in verse 31. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? It's just this gangster mentality. And yet, and yet, as this old Jacob has returned and these boys are acting wickedly, God loves. God for loved the world. It's amazing. And you read this stuff and you go, God, I can't love this. I'm not God. And he does, and, he, and he's faithful. And, and, and here this man, particularly Jacob, who has had personal interaction with God, has spoken with God, has said, I've wrestled with God, I've seen God and lived. We know those terms, and yet there is a rejection of his ability to protect him through this situation and call sin, sin. But the great thing is God is not that way. Psalm 36, 5 says, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. We sing that in a song. And then when we're faithless, I love Romans 3, it says, what then if some do not believe their unbelief, will that nullify the faithfulness of God? Will it? (laughs) That's what the verse asks in a question. No. And so I read 34 and I go, God, you're faithful. And we certainly aren't at times. Last thought, I want to wrap up two more chapters very quickly in all of this. God's nation of Israel is not built on man's works of righteousness, but on his mercy. I want you to read, listen to that title again or read it there. God's nation of Israel is not built on man's works of righteousness, but on his mercy. Is that any different than what that applies to us? Anybody think of a verse that that would come from? How about Titus 3, 5? That he saved us, not according to our righteous deeds, but according to his mercy. And when you think about this and you look at this, this is the fledgling nation of Israel. Twelve tribes are going to come from this. And more importantly, the seed of Christ is going to come through these boys, particularly Judah. And he's going to come and walk on this earth and he's going to die for the sins of all who will put their faith in him. And none of it, none of it is gained through our works. And so when you read these stories, you have to remember and say, God, I am so grateful that I did not come to you by my goodness. Because I can read this chapter and go, man, I never did anything that bad. Oh, but your heart and my heart are absolutely capable of all of this. And if you don't think so, go back and study Mark 7 again. (laughs) And go, ow, Lord. ah." So chapter 35, as we look into this, We see God's faithfulness, His promise of salvation. God starts to act. God quickly moves this infant nation out of harm's way. Notice in verse 1, Then God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and live there. Make an altar there to God who who appeared to you when you you fled from your brother Esau. And so, so he quickly moves this nation out of harm's way. And so now they move down to Bethel. It's about 10 miles north of where future Jerusalem will be, 35 miles south of, of this, where they've been, this area here. And, and Abraham's been there. He's built an altar. 
Um, Jacob saw the vision of ladder here. This is where he's telling him to go back. So after these murderous actions of, that were done in Shechem, Jacob quickly obeys and he returns. Notice verse 2 and 4. So Jacob said to his household and to all that were with him, put away your foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. And let us arise and go to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress as has been with me and has been with me ever, wherever I have gone. Verse 4, so they came to Jacob with all their foreign gods which they had and the rings with which were in their ears. And Jacob did, and Jacob hid them under an oak near, which was near Shechem. Now this is an interesting trend action that takes place here. Um, these tribes of of, of Simeon and, and Levi, uh, they, they would later suffer great consequences um, for this action. But God, for now, shows mercy and he, he moves this. But, but somehow here, Jacob senses that God wants his family cleansed. And this is, this is a good thing, I think, that's happened in this text. And he leads Jacob to cleanse his family of all these pagan idols. They, they've doubtlessly picked up all this. Notice they were to put away their dress and their rings. So what had happened to them? They let the environment change them. And so they're, they're to be stripped of this stuff, to put this away. He buries it under a tree. This is a little hard. I, I'm, I, I'm not totally sure, but here's my thought. I think trees were a place of pagan worship. They worshiped under these trees. They often put their idols under these trees. This is what they did. And so possibly, this is my thought, possibly Jacob is showing some kind of cultural gesture for the problems he caused. Here's your God's back. I buried him under a tree. We're stepping away. <laughs> I don't know. It's an interesting verse, isn't it? Verse 5, notice that God clears a path. He's just being so merciful to this little family. As they journeyed, there was terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. See, that's God. Because there's nothing in a human being that your family that was in Shechem, your uncles and aunts and brothers and all of that, there are no way normal people are not coming after you. And Jacob knew it. He says, how can we fight these people? Verse 6 and 7, Jacob came to Luz, which is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all his people who were with him, and he built an altar there and called it El Bethel um, because the Lord had revealed himself when he fled from his brother. So here he comes back. He builds an altar. He worships the Lord. This is the original spot that, would, that God appealed to him and came to him and revealed himself to him. Remember how important that was to Jacob and it gave him confidence that God was with him and, and he went on down to, to Padam Aram and there he found, um, he found Rachel and so forth. Verse 8. Now, uh, Deborah, uh, Rebecca's nurse, died, and this is just an interesting little scenario in here, and she was buried uh, below, uh, below Bethel under an oak tree named Alan Bakoth. Uh, Rebecca's, Jacob's uh, mother had died sometime before this, and the Bible actually doesn't record tremendously about that death, but the scripture says that a nurse dies on this trip, and you say, well, why, why would that be in the scripture? Why is this important? Well, one of the things we do know about Jacob is he did love his family. 
and he was very concerned about them as they moved. And so it's clear that he has all of his family with him, even this nurse or this woman who cared for Rebecca, and she dies, and the family is there to take care of her and see her through her death. 9 through 15 gets very interesting. Um, this is, this again, this re- reaffirmation of this covenant. God is gracious. He reaffirms it. Look, Jacob, you're no longer going to be Jacob. You're going to be Israel. Verse 9, I'm the Almighty God. Verse 10, I'm going to make you fruitful and mighty in a nation and a company of nations. And, and all of this great Abrahamic covenant is given to Jacob again after all of that wickedness. And just a quick thought here, there are times when you and I fall into grievous sin, don't we? And we turn to God and God reminds us that he forgave us. And, and what would we do without that? What if you had to work off all of your sins? How would you feel? And so here God reminds him of that. Verse 16, um, as we drop down um, after Jacob makes this altar and the drink offering and pours it on there and he names the place Bethel. In verse 16, they journeyed from Bethel and when they were there um, some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and she suffered in labor. For a while, Jacob and his family, they remained in Bethel there as they're traveling. I'm trying to give you a little bit of timeline. They built these altars and established the site. If you look back in the, in the preceding verses, he's building all these these altars, and he's really establishing this site as a very important place. But for whatever reason, Jacob senses it's time to move. He takes the family. Now he moves even farther. He's headed for Isaac's place, somewhere 50 miles south of that, maybe down around the the bottom of the Dead Sea down there. But verse 16 tells us that Rachel's pregnant again with Jacob's 12th son. But this is a difficult one. And somewhere along the way near a little village that would be later named... Bethlehem, she goes into labor. And it doesn't go well. She's in terrible pain. Notice verse 17 through 19, when she was in severe pain, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for you now have another son. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Honai, but his father called him Benjamin. The final tribe of Israel is born in this passage but at the cost of the death of Rachel. Benjamin will, from, from the tribe of Benjamin will come King Saul and the Apostle Paul. Isn't that interesting? But this verse is powerful, verse 18. It tells us that there's a death process, isn't there? The Bible says that life is in the blood if you've ever, um, ever bled anything out when you kill steers or lambs or stuff on the ranch. The, you put them down and you bleed them out and you just watch the life go out of them. It's very, very interesting to see how life is in the blood. Even the medical community understands that. It's apparent here as you study this verse that Rachel possibly was hemorrhaging or most likely and she was bleeding out. But in her bleeding out, she names her son this Benoni here, which means my son of sorrow. Isn't that interesting? Jacob renames him Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand. No wonder he won't let him go down to Egypt later. <laughs> right? You can see the connection there. Verse 19 and 20, Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. I think this is the first gravestone we see in the scriptures. Um, and this, that's a pillar of Rachel's uh, grave to this day. Uh, just a real quick comment here. There's no mention of Leah's death Tell Jacob's death. In, in Genesis 49, he speaks of that Leah was buried um, at Mamre, where Abraham and Isaac are buried. 
Um, but there's no mention of her death uh, in, in the scriptures here. But I think what's interesting here is they set up this grave site for her. It's where Bethlehem is. Well, in Bethlehem, our Savior's going to be born. But Bethlehem, and particularly Bethlehem area, is associated with the death of Rachel. And it's called a place of weeping. History tells us and, and, uh, as, as the nation went into judgment, and the, the Bible speaks of these things, of, of taking the nation and the tribes off to Assyria and Babylon and so forth, this was the place where they separated the nation. They did not want full tribes together, families together, so they could mount a, an attack against those who were taken into captivity. And so it is where she was buried where they often separated them into judgment. And it was always a place of weeping. This was a very weeping place as she died. This was the, the wife that Jacob loved. And to, to this day, it's a place that goes. And often people who are grieving things will go here thinking that God will hear them and they'll weep. And so it is a... Uh, a marker still to this day. People know where this is. Verse 22, there's still terrible wickedness in the camp. <laughs> right at the end of this, after they've journeyed to this Eder, it came about while Israel was dwelling in the land, that's Jacob, that Reuben went and laid with Bilhah, the father's concubine, and, and Israel heard of it. You go, wait a minute, we just left all that. See, the heart of man is just desperately wicked. It's there. And you think about Bilhah. She was not formerly a wife of Jacob. But though she is, is the father of his children, she's, she's still the father of the children and Reuben's half-brothers. And sadly, within the text, there's no response from Israel, from Jacob. It says, Israel heard of it. And so life is a mess. Verse 23, as we just, I want to finish this out tonight because we get to start Joseph. It's going to be good next time. Uh, this Joseph is, is wonderful to study. Um, but here's just a list that tells who's born from Leah. Here's born from Jacob, Reuben, Sim, uh, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun all come from Leah. It's Joseph and Rachel, of course, come, uh, Joseph and Benjamin come from Rachel. Bilhah um, has Dan and Naphtali and Zelpah. Uh, Rachel's made, we get Gad and Asher. And so they all come from that. But notice in verse 27, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre and uh, Kirath Arba. Uh, this is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had, had journeyed. So they're back in the homeland. They're back right to where Isaac was. And they get there just in time to see their dad die, it seems. Jacob lives 180 years. And we've been studying this for the last few weeks. We've been kind of going through Jacob's life. And we covered 180 years of time through these. And yet God chose certain events for us to see. This is the last time you see Esau and Jacob together. We never see them together again. We never see Esau's name ever used for anything good after this. He's always used as one who was immoral and warned not to be like him. Thus, the Bible goes to chapter 36, is largely dedicated to the lineage of Esau. And though God rejects Esau, he does bless his offspring. They become a great nation, just like he did with Ishmael. And that sin leads to some of the greatest enemies of Israel. But verse 2 is, is what kind of sums it all up. Notice verse 2, and we'll end with this. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. He rejected God's word. He rejected his parents. 
In the end, all this lineage, you can just kind of look down through here, and as you read them, it's all these chiefs, and they all die. <laughs> he dies, and he dies, and, and, and yet it's such an accurate um, recording of history. The Bible, there's no greater recording of history than the Bible. The Bible is so accurate of how many people were on this earth, and who lived, and when they begot, who they begot, how they died, and so forth. But interesting enough, God records all of chapter 36, which is a bunch of names of, of people you will never be able to know how to pronounce, let alone ever see them again in the Bible. And yet, out of these lines comes people like Rahab, <laughs> prostitutes that are in the line of Christ, who put their faith in God and reject their, their, their sins and turn to Him. And, and so, as I finished out the study, I said, Lord, you love people. You, you, you love them enough to send your son. And though most of that group will perish away from God in chapter 36, God always brings remnant out of the most interesting places. So that's the life of the, of the little nation of Israel. They're a fledgling group. And next week we'll turn to 37, and 37 through the rest of, of the book of Genesis through 50 is about Joseph. Centers around him, and he's a type He's a type of Christ. You don't, you don't see Joseph's sin within the text. Well, sure, he was a sinner, but he is a beautiful type, and we'll have great lessons to learn. So look forward to those chapters together. Father, thank you for such an attentive group of people tonight, Lord. And we thank you that though these are hard passages, they're not easy to study, they're not easy to preach, and they're not easy to hear. <laughs> but yet here you are in the midst of this protecting what seems to be a bunch of awful people. No care for life. No care for women and children and family. Just getting even. Way beyond what was done to them. And yet they're called your people. And so Lord, we see your mercy. And we pray, Lord, that you would... Cause us to love your mercy. Lord, there's people in this room, myself included, we need your daily mercy on our life. There's people going through some very difficult things. There's people probably in this room who have made very poor decisions. God, I pray that we would all humble ourselves before you. And we would plead for your mercy. Not to get off or get away with something, but to know that you're a merciful God and you forgive where no one else can forgive. And you love to restore. And so may we not be like the sons of Israel who don't repent, who bring condemnation down on generations that follow them, Lord. May we be people who repent and fall before the mercy of God when we sin. And we know that you provided that mercy through your son's perfect work. Thank you for circumcising our hearts, for cutting away the deadness that would take us to hell. Lord, you are a great God. And so we, we be merciful people because you've been merciful to us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll see you Sunday, Lord willing.